Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire. Joining me still in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic from Santa Barbara is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to see you. You know, we were joking before the show begins about how each of us, our hair is growing longer oh, yeah. because there's no barber shops. <laughs> there's no. no way to get your hair cut. And so we might be cavemen by episode 250. Yeah, I get my hair cut like every, I don't know, five or six weeks probably. And um, this thing happened when I was probably about due for a haircut. And I actually called my barber shop a while ago and they were, they were going for a time. And then before I got around to it, they had shut down. So, yeah, I guess I'll just have to look a little shaggy for, for a while. And I totally understand. Please don't write us letters that these are first world <laughs> problems. Not having yeah, your hair cut they are for indeed. a podcast on the internet. Um, okay, well, Bishop, today I wanted to talk about an article that's been making, their, making its way around the internet. It's become sort of a viral, heavily commented on article. It's by David Brooks. It was recently published in The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. It's a long article. It's like 9,000 words, roughly 40 minutes, 60 minutes to read it. It's titled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake, which is sort of a very provocative title for an article. Here's his basic gist. He contends in the article, and I'm quoting him here, that a married couple with 2.5 kids was an anomaly for the 1950s and 1960s, and that this nuclear family model is no longer working for many Americans, especially those who are less privileged. To address our family crisis, Brooks argues, we need to break out of the nuclear family is best mindset and, quote, thicken and broaden, end quote, family relationships by incorporating extended families, voluntary groups living together, thick relationships with friends, all as better ways to raise children. Now, you read the article, I read the article. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend this whole episode dissecting it. I just want to use it as a launching point to discuss the more general topic of the family and what the Catholic Church teaches and advises about the family. But maybe, first of all, what do you think about his basic thesis that this nuclear family was a mistake? Well, you know, I, I thought the article was very interesting, and I appreciated the sort of historical sweep he gave us. And even going back to, let's say, prior to the 1950s, so go back into the you know, 19th century, early 20th century, when the extended family was much more the norm, whether we're out in the country or even in cities, uh, and I have a, you know, my grandmother, who was born in, I think, 1898, um, she had a very, I call it clannish sense of the family. Now, she's Irish, the Irish clan. And I think when my dad was a kid, my, my grandmother's parents lived in the house. Uh, a couple of cousins were around all the time because their family lived almost right across the street. And I remember going to my grandmother's house. So this is now in, like, the 1960s. I'm a little tiny kid, but it was like a, uh, um, you know, it was like a circus going on. There were so many people, and the family was indeed much more than just mom, dad, and 2.5 kids. It was this kind of clannish sense. And Brooks, you know, I think legitimately sings the praises of that way of organizing our lives. There was something lovely about it. I also liked a lot his almost nostalgic. Um, remembrance of the front porch culture, because I also associated that with my grandmother. What he means is a lot of homes, I'll go back to the first part of the 20th century, had porches, and there wasn't air conditioning. So especially in the summertime, people lived on their front porches, which meant they had connection to each other. And, you know, kids from across the street were always coming to your house and your kids going to their house, and we were 
we were having interface on these front porches. Also the fact that in those days, families tended to be a lot bigger. I remember that distinctly. Uh, when I was a little kid, you come into a restaurant, and it wasn't at all atypical for the father of the family to say, a table for seven, please, a table for six, for table for eight. Um, that was common, that families had a lot of kids, and they lived in a more clannish kind of relationship. There was something in his article that I really liked about the sort of nostalgic memory of that. Then his commentary that, yes, that kind of shifted. So as I was coming of age, so 60s into the 70s, the more uh, nuclear, you know, smaller family, parents and kids, but also that interesting thing about, about air conditioning and, the, and the, the ending of the porch culture. And, you know, the, the suburban neighborhood, he has an image of, uh, of the one, you know, young mother with a stroller walking through the sidewalks, and she's the only person you can see in the whole neighborhood. I, I liked his uh, reference to African friends of his who came to this country as immigrants from different countries for different reasons, but they all said what struck them most about America was loneliness. It seemed like a very lonely society, you know? So I, I thought all that was an interesting um, analysis. And then as you suggest, so is there something now beyond the nuclear family from the 50s, 60s, and 70s? this new form of social um, interaction. We could talk about that. But I, those are some things I liked about the article and thought were, were thought-provoking. Uh, I like David Brooks. I mean, he's an interesting fellow and usually is, you know, from within a moral, quasi-religious tradition, kind of trying to look at things. So I, I appreciated all those uh, elements. I think a lot of what drove his article was the recognition that so many nuclear families have collapsed because they're so fragile. If it's just mm -hmm. a mom and a dad and a couple yeah. of kids, if something happens to the dad, they're in serious trouble. If the mom checks out, they're in a really bad place. And so he encourages thickening what he calls families of choice. These yeah. ones, these relationships, these connections that we opt into, not that we you know, receive biologically, but that we choose to make. And I know talking about this with you, you said you immediately recognized in your life the Word on Fire family yeah. as representing this family of choice in your life. Yeah, and uh, I've used that language a lot. In fact, one of my favorite things is in my office back in, in the house. I've got this picture of when we had the great retreat last summer, and we invited the whole Word on Fire gang from all over the country to come here. And this picture was taken on my back porch of about you know, 30 people, most of them much younger than I. Uh, I'm there in the middle of the picture. And um, it's, it's my Word on Fire family. We had a gathering of the priests of L.A. not long after that retreat. And uh, the retreat director in the small group said to us, reflect on what really gives you life in the priesthood. It's a good question, you know. So we know what's dragging us down a lot in the priesthood, but what gives you life? And right away... I thought of that picture, and I said, generativity. I said, what gives me life is a sense of, of having generated something, having given life. And it was this word-on-fire family. Now, you know, in one way, it's, a, it's more of a business relationship. There's all people who are involved in the ministry, but it's, it's much more than that. And I've experienced it as a, as a spiritual father. Now, these are not people, now my brother's involved, so there's one biological relationship, but these are not people with whom I have a biological relationship, but a relationship of choice that we've all decided to, to you know, bond this way. Good. 
Good. I have no quarrel with that. I think those are, are good and healthy. But And this maybe is where we could go next in the conversation. There's something to be said for freedom and, and associations that we freely enter into and something to be said for those that are given to us. And what I'm a little afraid of, I don't want everything turning into something that I choose and that's not given to me. And I think, and it will say more about it, but I think there's something dangerous in the reduction of everything to communities that we've freely entered into. I think there's a real limitation there. Let's go there. Uh, you've, talking, you've spoken often about the culture of self-invention, where I, I yeah. create my own identity, my own destiny, and part of that includes creating my own deepest relationships. Yeah. I'm not just assigned them arbitrarily, but I pick and choose who I relate to. But it reminds me of a G.K. Chesterton quote where he said, you know, a wonderful social experiment would be to take any person and drop them into a random room with a collection of other random people who display all the quirks of humanity and encourage them to figure out a way to get along. And he said, well, that's precisely what happens to all of us the moment we're born, is we're dropped into this random collection yeah. of, of people, each with their own you know, quirks and whims and desires and interests, and we have to figure out how to make it work. We're not choosing them, we're given that. Why is that a healthy thing? Well, I'll rely here on, um, on Paul Tillich, the Protestant theologian, who speculates about what he calls the ontological polarities. These are polarities that, that qualify or characterize being at all levels. But one of them is the polarity between what he calls freedom and what he calls destiny. Now what's freedom? That's what we're all um, aware of. We all uh, value it. It's maybe the supreme value in our society, which is I choose, I decide, it's my uh, freedom, it's my decision. Good, good, that's healthy, that's important. If you suppress people's freedom, that's a terrible thing. Our country is born in a great outburst of, of energy around the issue of freedom. Don't tread on me. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's all freedom language. Good, and that's influenced modernity in a very profound way. But, says Paul Tillich, freedom is in a healthy, mind you, a healthy tension with what he calls destiny. Destiny is what is given to us. It's the foundation, if you want, upon which freedom operates. It's this stuff with which freedom uh, works. Example. Uh, you and I are here speaking English. Oh, because we decided when we were four years old, is it Spanish, French, German, or English? I'll choose English. I mean, come on. It's not a matter of choice. English was given to the two of us. It was a world that we were thrown into. And, and we were, it, it, was, it was conditioning us before we could even begin to understand what freedom means, right? Um, Family is very much like that, and now I mean my biological family. I mean mom and dad, in my case, brother and sister. Um, that group, I didn't choose them, as Chesterton suggests quite rightly. I didn't choose them. Uh, they weren't there to please my desire. They were the given of my life. And in inescapable ways, and I'll be honest, you know, both good and bad, that's true for all of us, I suppose, um, that group of people shaped me, became the matrix out of which I developed. Any sense of identity or freedom that I have was conditioned by 
this destiny. Now, take another step so it's beyond just the psychological or sociological. Behind that destiny, we would say as believers, is God. God who, this is Thomas Aquinas, he dot essay, he gives being. That's God's job. God gives being. He wants us to be free. Yes, indeed, I'm not saying a word against freedom. But God gives us something to work with. And that's what I would call, following Tillich, destiny. The biological family, I would say, is something given to us by God, out of which our freedom will emerge. So, you know this, Brandon, and it's going to happen pretty soon now because some of your older kids are getting close to being teenagers, right? And I've watched it happen over and over and over again. And it's heartbreaking for parents when your teenage kid begins to, you know, go his own way and have his own thoughts and make his own decisions. Um, Tough on parents, it always is, but it's also just, it's built into the process because that kid is trying to find his own, you know, path and good. That's destiny, freedom. Teenage years, man, that's when freedom bursts forth, you know. How come, how come I dye my hair purple? Because I can. I choose to. You know, So it's a great outburst of freedom. But freedom and destiny are always in a healthily tensive relationship. So that was a long-winded way of saying I'm a little bit uneasy with the claim that we can somehow set aside the family given to us, the biological family, and now move into this wonderful world of a chosen family. Um, I, I love chosen families, like the word on fire one. But I don't want to bracket the givenness of the biological family, which I think has enormous both psychological and theological uh, importance. One of the things that struck me after I converted to Catholicism and started reading the various documents of Catholic social teaching is the repeated strong emphasis on the family. It's everywhere in encyclicals um, from John Paul II's Familiaris Consortio all the way up to Pope Francis's Amoris Laetitia. There's this strong emphasis that the family is the basic unit of society. And I remember thinking how odd and unique that was amidst all the other socioeconomic options. You know, you have capitalism with places a primary emphasis on the individual. You have um, socialism on the greater community, communism on the state. Catholicism seems emphatic that it's the family that should be the basic cell of society. Why why does the Catholic Church value the family so much? It's very interesting, Brandon, the way you put that, I think is is absolutely right. It's very interesting because, you know, we often say this, that there's a, uh, you know, a both-and quality to Catholic social teaching. It doesn't fit neatly into our typical categories of left and right. And that's a prime example. Uh, Yes, for example, we affirm the market. We affirm the dignity of the individual, all of that. Yet, Catholic social teaching is not individualistic. You know, some of that I I read for years, I had great reverence for him, uh, William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review and one of the great intellectual leaders of American conservatism. But Buckley once uh, characterized his approach as individualism. Well, Buckley certainly knew Catholic social teaching, but I, I wouldn't, I'm not at home with that. I, I don't think individualism is the way. To me, that, that smacks more of, of modernity, of the modern socioeconomic and political model. 
I think you're right in saying for Catholics, family as the foundation is the building block of society, not the individual. Now, dignity of the individual, absolutely. No question about that. We don't want any reduction of the individual to some collectivity. That's why we're against socialist and communist forms. But I think it is very important and eloquent what you just said. It's neither the grand society nor the individual, but it's the family that's the building block. Now, what's the reason for that? The Trinity, ultimately. What's ultimate reality for us? An individual. Well, yeah, God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is God alone. No one's denying the unity of God. But yet God subsists in, these, in this set of relationships that we call the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so something like a dynamism of relationality is ontologically basic, if I can put it in desperately abstract language. Uh, what's the fundamental uh, reality? It's not the unit. It's not the collectivity. It's something much more like the family. And that's why I think you're right in saying that's the building block of society in Catholic social teaching. And that's the family, mind you, that's given. It's part of our destiny. It's the biological family. There's also something, Brandon, you know, very incarnational here. Uh, let's face it. Your family is, is a, it's a physical reality. Uh, if my brother walked in here right now, everyone always says this, he, boy, does he look like me, or I look like him. We look like my mother, or we look at my, my dad. It's built into, the, into our bodies that we're connected to each other. I, I'm resistant to, to me, it, it seems like a modernism. It's more of a Kantian, Cartesian move to say the real me is deep down inside this will or this mind that makes my own choices. Well, who say that's the real me? I mean, yeah, that's there, of course. Freedom, I'm for it. You know, I, I want your kids to find their freedom in their own path and so on. But why is that the real me? <laughs> why would I say, oh, that's what I'm really all about and this, this physical stuff and what was given to me, that's all kind of, you know, I got to move beyond that. I never move beyond that. You know, and we all know this, Brandon, is um, just when we think, boy, have I really found my own path, I'm my own person, is I realize how much like my dad I am, or how much like my mother, or gosh, as I'm getting older, I, I, I'm feeling more and more that my father was right about these things, and I'm reacting the way he, he would. I, I look in the mirror and I see him. You know, when you're a little kid, you don't always see the, the physical so, but now I do as I get older. There's my dad. I'm looking back at him. Well, that's part of destiny. That's part of what's given to me. And, and woe to us, this is my caution with the Brooks thing, woe to us if we try to bracket that or see it as relatively unimportant or put my own freedom and, and self-assertion over and against that. They're in, Paul Tillich again, a healthily tensive relationship. Again, I'm sorry, a long-winded answer, but I, I think it's those are important philosophical uh, clarifications. One of the things that Brooks does in his article in The Atlantic is trace the demise of the nuclear family. H how did it crumble apart so quickly in the 20th century? And he mentions the normal, usual culprits, things like no-fault divorce, the advent of contraception, but he really hones in on what he describes as marriage being primarily about adult yeah. fulfillment. And yeah. he quotes a couple psychologists and sociologists to make this point. 
He says that uh, the self-expressive marriage has become the prototype today. People look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. Marriage is no longer primarily about childbearing and child-rearing. Now, marriage is primarily about adult fulfillment. It reminds me of a word you used earlier, which is generativity. You know, instead of marriage being about generating new life, both physical life, but also the, <clears throat> the life of love between a husband and wife and their children, now marriage is more interiorly turned. And it's, it's what can this, you know, institution or structure do for me? How can it help me find myself? Do, do, have you seen that same shift in the way we oh, understand gosh. marriage today? You know that video, Brandon, several years ago, no, I did. It was based on a Time Magazine cover story on the childless couple. And it was, it was making this argument that there's been a major sociological shift in our country that many people are entering marriage with zero interest in having children. And I did a, a video, you know, critical of that attitude. Well, it's one of the most watched and commented on and probably hated on videos I've ever done because um, this view has taken hold of a lot of people. Uh, what's basic to Christian spirituality? Your life is not about you. And one of the forms that takes, of course, would be parents who give rise to children and they realize, I mean, I, I don't, as, a, as a, a man without children in the biological sense, I don't feel it the way you do. But every father and mother I've talked to, they know this in their bones, that once the kids come, I mean, like it or not, my life is not about me. It just isn't. And it's not about realizing my dreams. Now, you know, you're a good example, Brandon. I mean, you're a guy with a lot of intelligence and get up and go, and, and you've achieved and accomplished lots of things. Good. It's not like you've just become this, you know, this marginal figure. No, you, you've done what you want to do. Nevertheless, I'd be willing to bet if it came down to achieving your personal goals or making sure your children flourish, it wouldn't be much of a debate, right? Uh, your life is not about you. And I think parents get that in their bones. Um, and, and that's the danger of construing marriage simply as a project of self-fulfillment. It's a project um, of values that go way beyond you and beyond your ego. See, and for me as a priest, the version of it is, my life isn't about me, it's about the people I'm called to serve. Um, parish priests, especially talk about that, when they're assigned to a place and to a people. My life is about them. It's not about my achieving my personal goals. Even as I, you know, look at, like in my case, Word on Fire, you know, which began very small as kind of a personal uh, mission of mine. Okay, and it's grown and developed and great, great, I'm glad. But my life has to be finally about the people I've been called upon to serve. I would be loath ever to see that disappear. And that's my fear of marriage as a project of self-realization. Bishop, I know quickly that when a lot of people hear us praise the family, immediate objections come up. Well, what if my family's awful? What if sure. I'm in an abusive family? What if my family demeans me? Uh, what about these cases? Then let your freedom uh, come forth and stand up against it and resist it. So. You know, again, keep the Tillich thing in mind. It's a tensive relationship between freedom and destiny. Don't let destiny overwhelm your freedom. That's the other problem, right? So our culture tends to hypervalue freedom, but you can hypervalue destiny where you just become a victim of your family. You can't escape from a possibly dysfunctional family. If that's the case, 
No, no, uh, you know, let freedom ring and assert your liberty and stand against it. So I, I'm by no means advocating, you know, just to acquiesce to whatever. No, I mean, every family is to some degree crazy, and some are really abusive. Well, to that degree, you resist it, and you find your own path. Um, so no, that's, again, the tensiveness between freedom and destiny. Well, if you want more on this, I encourage you to read David Brooks' article. It's very it's stimulating and interesting. Again, uh, it's from The Atlantic. We'll link to it beneath this video, but it's called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. But don't stop there. After you read that, check out some of what the Catholic Church and the theologians and popes have said about the family, too, because I think it provides a helpful counterbalance. Well, it's time now for a question from one of our listeners. Today, we have one from Cesar in Los Angeles, Bishop Barron's own archdiocese, and he's asking about beauty. Here's his question. Hi, Bishop. This is Cesar from Los Angeles. You emphasize something you call the via pulcritudinis, the way of beauty towards evangelization, and that's great. That's fantastic. Um, so how would you define beauty itself? What's a good, concise definition? And how can we prove that it is objective because well in terms of aesthetics and beautiful things there are lots of tastes so how do you reconcile that with the idea of objective beauty it's a great set of questions and we need a whole university course to address them i'll give you thomas aquinas's definition he said the beautiful quad visum placet that which having been seen pleases that's the beautiful quad visum placet now why is it please further from Thomas Aquinas. It pleases because there's a coming together of three elements, what he called consonancia, which means uh, harmony, integritas, which means wholeness, and claritas, which means radiance. So when it's about one thing, integritas, when all the elements in it hang together harmoniously, consonancia, and when therefore it radiates forth a sort of luminosity of formal perfection. That's a fancy way of saying, boy, that's what that's supposed to be. You know, when you see a beautiful golf swing and you say, man, that, that's it. That's, that's a golf swing. You see Notre Dame Cathedral and you say, that's a church, man. And talk about the integrity of it, the wholeness of it, how all the elements cohere. You read Dante's Divine Comedy. So integritas, consonancia, claritas, when they come together, we say, quad visum placet, what, what I've seen pleases. Okay, now second part of your question. How do we know it's not subjective? How do you know two plus two equals four is not subjective? Because it knocks you in your face by its own, in its own power. In other words, it defies you to manipulate it or run around it is when you're presented with a mathematical truth or a truth about psychology or truth about someone's life or whatever it is, it defies you. It stands in front of you. It stands athwart your will and says, try as you might, you are not going to knock me down. It's that experience that convinces us I'm dealing here with something objective and not just my own fancy. Well, the same thing is true of the beautiful. And I'm talking about the truly beautiful, not something like, you know, you got a little... You know, I fancy this, or I got a whim I'm going to follow. I mean, when you're in the presence of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, when you're in the presence of Chartres Cathedral, when you're reading Dante's Divine Comedy, when you're looking at the Mona Lisa, 
there's it it defies your puny will to say otherwise. That's why we know it's beautiful. Um, hey, I you know if, I, look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Yeah, that's nice. See, what would you say to that person? You wouldn't say, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good point of view. You know, I kind of like it, but I respect your. Of course you wouldn't. You'd say, what are you an idiot? That's the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Look at it again, dummy. See, my point there is the beautiful, if it's really beautiful, has this power to it that overwhelms our petty little privatized subjectivism. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I like spaghetti meatballs. Brandon doesn't like it. Okay, fine. That's a matter of taste. Spaghetti meatballs is not going to come into your face and challenge your, your freedom. But by God, Shark Cathedral does, and by God, Dante does, and Thomas Aquinas does. So... That's how you know that the beautiful has an objective quality to it. Okay, end of rant. I'm sorry for <laughs> ranting on that one. Well, for the record, I love spaghetti and meatballs. So <laughs> oh, yeah, that was good. An objectively okay. false statement. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, Bishop, it was something you've said before that's helped me is you've recognized that our appreciation for beauty, our aesthetic sense, is something that needs to be developed. Yeah. So use the example of two plus two equals four. If I went to my three-year-old daughter, Zelly, and asked her what two plus two equals, and she said, I don't know, or five, you know, the reason she got it wrong yeah. is not because she has a subjectively different right. opinion. It's just because she hasn't been formed in That's the understanding right. of mathematics. And the same with the appreciation yeah. for beauty, right? And the last thing you would ever do is say, you know, Zelly, I, I appreciate your perspective on that. Thank you. And I'm not going to impose my subjective view that it's for. I mean, but that's the, we're, we're into this position now, aren't we, in our culture? That we're so, we're so reluctant ever to violate anyone's sense of subjectivity that this wonderful, bracing objectivity of the good and the true and the beautiful is lost. And that is a cultural calamity. All right. Well, we'll end on that note. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Again, we'll link to the David Brooks article beneath the video if you want more on that. Also, I asked you this last week, and I'll ask it again. Maybe you've been listening to the Word on Fire show for years, 200-plus episodes. You've enjoyed it. You've benefited from these conversations. If so, please return the favor by taking five seconds and leaving a review of the podcast on your favorite store, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Every review you leave helps us tremendously because then those services recommend our show to new listeners. So take a couple seconds, leave a review, and we'd really be grateful for you. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, I encourage you to share it and be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel.